0: Our second lesson picks up just there. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elijah's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be cleaned. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more, when all he said to you was wash and be clean. So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. He came and stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if we were all good Hebrew scholars and good at Hebrew pronunciation, we would call him Naaman, but we're not. So Naaman is how I'll refer to him and probably how you'll refer to him and have referred to him for your entire lives as long as you've known this story. This is a story, again, an Old Testament story that has a bunch of New Testament echoes in it. We hear... Echoes of healings, right? In the New Testament. The word used here for leprosy that the NRSV translates skin condition is not the word used in other places in the Old Testament for leprosy. So it probably wasn't that. It talks about the skin becoming white, um, blanched, uh, which is language that's been used other places. But that leprosy language ties it together with some other stories for us, doesn't it? That in the New Testament, Ten lepers come to Jesus, and Jesus isn't as afraid of them as he probably should be, according to the cultural norms of the day. And he heals all ten of them simply by saying, go and show yourselves to the priests. And the tagline in that story is that only one of them turns around to say thank you.
1: Um, Jesus gets a little indignant about that at the time. Miriam is cursed with leprosy earlier in the Exodus narrative
0: um, and then gets healed. There are, there are challenges and, and pieces around this. And leprosy has terrified us as a people well up into the 1800s um, and beyond. But that's not really the important part of this story. This is a, a miraculous healing. It is the power of the River Jordan which Naaman doesn't really seem quite taken with in the story. But let's skip through the story again fairly quickly. There's a general. He's in Aram. Aram is the land just to the north. You get that picture when he talks about Damascus. You can still find Damascus on a map today in Syria. That's the geopolitical realities of the day and the geography. Um, And we're in the northern kingdom. And not only that, Naaman has been very successful as a general because the Lord has given Aram victory through him. So there's a sense that God's hand is at play in all of this. Which is really frustrating if you're Israel and Judah, because you were told you were the ones that God loved. And now here's God giving some other general victory, some other land victory, and even over you, well... Get used to it, Israel and Judah. It happens a lot. Babylon gets used that way. Assyria gets used that way. Cyrus, king of Persia, gets used and named as a Messiah from outside because they're doing what God wants to be done in the scheme of the story. One of the side effects of that is that Naaman's wife has a servant girl who was captured in one of those battles who's from Israel, and she starts this whole story. I mean, she's really the mover and shaker in this whole story. She says, if only my master could go down to Samaria and get healed by a prophet in Samaria. Now, all right, my New Testament scholars, what, what good is in Samaria, right? God doesn't hang out in Samaria. We, we've we read our New Testament enough to know that we should be astonished and astounded by a good Samaritan and Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. But in this story, Samaria is where God is at work. It does not have that negative connotation, that that flair, that, uh, well, that we need to be talking about good Samaritans 2,000 years later as though they're still an odd thing. Um This is where the man of God is. And you may remember that Jesus spends a good bit of his time in Samaria as well. Now, what happens next is what happens when you get bureaucracy involved. Naaman goes to his king. His king drafts a letter and a gift, and they get an
1: entourage, and they go to the king of Israel. And the note says, here, heal my general.
0: The king of Israel does not take that well. He tears his clothes. He basically throws a little bit of a temper tantrum and says, who does this guy think I am? I'm not God. I can't cure this. I can't be the difference between life and death. And here he's sending me gold. He's sending me silver. He's sending me 10 outfits with an unreasonable ask, just so he can start a fight with me. Now, now, All of that is probably full and a quasi-appropriate response if you're the king of Israel. We had Dan help us with the math on how much this stuff was worth. And a shekel is 26 kilograms, which is 50 some odd pounds times ounces. And like, it's a lot. I think we came out at 96,000 ounces or more at $20 an ounce in today's market. That's a pretty good gift. But that's just the silver. There's also 150 shekels of gold. Well, 6,000 shekels, which is 150 pounds, which guess what? Is another bunch of money. Because 150 pounds is 9,000 ounces. And gold this morning was worth just under $1,700 an ounce. And on top of that, 10 outfits in a day and an age where most people had one, and if they were well-to-do, two. This is, this is a pretty good gift. It's also, from the king of Israel's perspective, a pretty good threat. Like, if I give you all this stuff and you still can't do what I want, well, my general's right there. Did I mention he brought some chariots and some horses? So the king of Israel throws a hissy fit and makes the only theological statement contained in this by somebody who should know who God is to begin with. Who am I? I'm not God. I don't have power over life and death.
1: Enter Elisha, prophet of the Lord, understudy of Elijah. He, like
0: Solomon, asked for a double helping of spirit and wisdom. Elisha sends a message to the king and says, why don't you just send him on to me so that he may know there is a prophet in Israel? Probably a little backhanded text in there so that you may remember that there is a prophet of the one true and living God in Israel too, king. I should be in your Google contacts. I should be programmed into your phone. You should remember who I am. Anyway, Naaman goes to see Elisha, and Elisha does not open the door. Elisha sends somebody. Go tell
1: him to take a bath in the Jordan seven times. It'll be fine. And Naaman says, doesn't he know who I am?
0: I went to the doctor's office. I had an appointment with the doctor, and they sent me a PA. I'm paying to see the doctor. And kind of stomps off. You know, if I'd known it was like this, I could have stayed at home. We got rivers at home. Wouldn't they have worked? Does that sound like any Israelites you
1: know during the Exodus? You know, if I'd known we were going to die, there are plenty of good grave sites in Egypt. We don't change a whole lot over thousands of years, do we, as, as a people? And then
0: we get to this other interesting part of this where some of his servants come up to him and say, if he'd asked you to do something hard, like if he told you he needed you to go, you know, let's pick a pick like a fairy tale mission, climb to the top of the glass mountain and get one of the golden apples and fly back on the Phoenix. You'd be trying to do that. Right. Right. Naaman, you'd be all in for that but you won't go like do this very, very simple thing. Naaman goes and does this very, very simple thing. He disappoints Granger greatly in that he does not bathe just three times. It takes seven times. And his skin is like that of a young boy. He is cured. He goes back to, um, Elisha actually gets to talk to Elisha this time. It appears in the story and makes a proclamation of faith that there is no God, but the God in Israel. If you want to know what gets left out, you really need to go home and read the rest of chapter five, because there is an awful lot of interesting story after this. So you need to go home and read that Um If you want to know about little con artists who work as servants and repercussions and things like that, then go home and read the rest of the story. The part that struck me in reading this passage was not like the echoes to the seven days of creation and Naaman being a new creation, not to the River Jordan where Jesus is baptized that sets off all sorts of new changes in the world, not to the Jordan as the Mark of entering into the land, not to leprosy and miracles and healings and not to gold and silver and 10 changes of clothes. It was that we always talk about this as Elisha healing Naaman, and frankly, they don't do a whole lot. This whole story gets started and moved on by two sets of folks that we don't even give names to. And I mean, we should know by now in scripture that a lot of times the important people we haven't bothered to give a name to. We've got the woman with the bleed. We've got the man born blind. You got the woman at the well. You know, I mean, we've got all these these people who have no names, but they have these basic interactions with the world around them that change things. So go back to the very start of this story, and it's a servant girl captured in a raid who says, if only you could go see the prophet in Samaria. Right, and that's a very simple statement. Just go and see. And that's one of the things I think that the servant girl, the common everyday normal human being has over the general, is she doesn't have to go through channels. She doesn't have to ask the king for permission to go into another country. It doesn't look like a war is starting if she and her entourage cross national borders. So I think she means exactly what she says is, you know, this would be really simple if you could just go see the prophet. What happens then is how I described it in Sunday school was it's like the healthcare system is that. Uh. You hear from somebody that there's a treatment or a doctor you ought to see, and then you call your health insurance to get pre-approved, and they send 32 letters of referral and six stacks of paperwork, and then you get seen by a doctor who goes, why are you here? We don't do this. And when you finally get routed around later to the right doctor, you get the PA, and you leave there a little frustrated. For any of you who thought scripture didn't speak to today's experience, there you have it. But by the time we get through all of that, the kings have made things complicated. They've made it international politics. They've made it threats of war and detente. And maybe you have something and I want it and I'm afraid of you, but I really want the gold. And Elisha has to remind the king, that there is indeed a prophet in Israel, and then we get to Elisha, and Naaman throws a hissy fit because Elisha won't even come to the door,
1: and then we get back to the servants who are the common sense in the conversation. You know, Lord, if it had been something hard, you would have done it. Our medical parallel for that is, what do you mean diet and exercise? I need surgery and drugs. What do you mean diet and exercise? How many of us have been told diet and exercise and have chosen not to do diet and exercise?
0: Just a couple of us. So that is the scenario where the servants find themselves talking to Naaman is, hey, If he told you something extreme, something difficult, something challenging, something that required great sacrifice, if he told you quit being a warrior, go serve other people. Oh, there's a story like that in the New Testament, isn't there? Give up all you have and serve people. And that's too much for that rich young ruler. But Naaman buckles to this common sense, and he goes and washes himself seven times in the Jordan River, and he's made clean. Goes back, he makes a proclamation of faith. Um, There's a lot more to read, and and you probably should because it's a fun kind of story from here on out. Um, But I want us to think for a moment about who it is that moves this story, because it's not the big names. The big names are the beneficiaries of it. Elisha gets another miracle on his list. Naaman gets healed.
1: The people who make this happen are a servant girl and some unspecified servants. Why? Maybe because they have to rely on
0: faith more in their day-to-day lives. They don't have as much control over things. Their faith is different and deeper. Maybe it's because uh, there's a pattern of this in the New Testament. There's a, a lady in a widow's mite in an offering box. She gave everything she had to live on. This is what they have to live on, is faith that things can be transformed, that God is at work in the world And that it's not all solved by a letter from one king to another king. I think that's a good example sometimes of how our faith functions in the world. Is that we get caught up in either wanting to see the miracle the way Naaman wants to see a miracle. Naaman wants Benny Hinn to come out and do some big drama Maybe some dry ice, maybe a laser light show, slay him in the spirit and and have the skin disease go away. That's what he really wants. I could have sworn he was going to come out, He was going to wave his hands, He was going to call on the name of the Lord his God, and I would be made
1: clean. Oh, sorry, Naaman There's a question here as to who gets God more? The servants or the masters, the kings and the generals, or the everyday people. And I think our reality is that it's the everyday people.
0: I don't think that's changed. I think that we often make complaints about people in the ivory tower of academia or people in the halls of power it's election week. I can say those darn
1: people in Springfield in D.C., and y'all fill in who that is in your head. They just don't get it. And
0: I think there's a piece of that rooted in our faith as well, that it takes a little bit of desperation. It takes a little bit of every day. It takes a little bit of, I can't go
1: through the system because the system doesn't work. To point us to God. And so this story
0: gets moved as much as it's a story of huge names. We got two kings, we got a general, we got a prophet, and we got these no name servants. And the no name servants are the ones who get it done. They are the ones who proclaim the power of God through a prophet in Samaria. They are the ones who say, if it was easy,
1: It was hard. It's hard. You do it. Why won't you do the easy thing? They're the ones, the only ones
0: who really challenge power. Everybody else is doing it through channels. Naaman goes to see his boss who's the king. His boss, who's the king, sends a bribe to the king of Israel. The king of Israel just throws
1: his hands up in the air and tears his clothes. These are people who are essentially risking what they have to confront their masters, their leaders,
0: with a story of the power of God that brings the truth to what the king of Israel says, that the king of Israel is not at the top of the food chain. Because the kings and the generals want to believe that they're at the top of the food chain. I mean, I'm king. You can play the clip from Simba and the Lion King about wanting to be king um, here now. But, you know, There is a reality in which being further down the line lets you see more clearly who the real power is in the world. And that is what the servants bring to this story. They bring the freedom to say that they are not in charge and they do not have the power, but they know where it is. And because they know that, they can point Naaman to that. They can allow for God to be at work in the world in a different way than the kings are at work in the world. And that leads to Naaman realizing his place in the world in a different way, leads to us realizing our place in the world in a different
1: way. When they do studies, as they do a lot about church, about church giving. Do you know
0: who gives the most money to church? It's not rich people, by the way.
1: In, in pure absolute dollars, it's rich people. In percentage, it's poor people. The percentage is... Uh, for all church giving, regardless of denomination, regardless
0: of religious group in America, is about 2.4% of gross income. Keep in mind, a tithe is 10%, and every church budget basically in the country could be four times what it is if people tithe. There's your stewardship message for the day. In poorer communities, in communities of color, it's often closer to 5 or 6%. Because there is a sense that the activity of God can do things that no other thing in this world can do. Where at the other end of the spectrum, there's a sense that you can get the best doctor, you can get the best education, you can get the best second chance, the safest house. Because you have the cash to afford it. You have the power and the influence. And so there is a piece here that these servants remind us that nobody at the top of the scale gets it. The king of Aram doesn't get it. The king of Israel seems to have forgotten that Elisha exists.
1: And Naaman thinks it should all be showy. As we continue to
0: read the stories in Scripture, I want you to keep your eyes open for the no-name characters, because they're often the ones who are moving the story along. Because for them, faith really is a matter of life and death, and they have no recourse but
1: God. To God alone be the glory this day and forevermore. Amen.